There are no secrets between father and son, except one. You have a talent that would shock the hell out of people. But it's a talent that else can be put to good use. For lovers of the shocking, the suspenseful, and the terrifying, comes a new classic, The Fury. Read my mind. Look, I don't know anything about reading minds, all right? The Fury, an experience in terror and suspense. They took my son away from me. They needed him, so they just took him. What the hell have you done to that boy? Oh, he's being treated like a prince. He is, he's royalty, unique. Chinese don't have one, Soviets don't have one. In all the world, there's no one quite like Robin Sands, unless it's this girl. Who's Robin Sands? He's a boy your age. With powers like yours. Powers that build. And build. Until they become the Fury. I want Gillian Belliver at the PSI facility tomorrow. It's a frightening power these people have. They can make anybody disappear anytime. She's a fake. I'm selling her home. I don't have time to waste on people. Don't do that to me, Doctor. Don't ever try lying to me. Gillian? Century Fox presents a Frank Yablon's presentation. Don't you recognize your old man? The Fury. <laughs> the Fury, a Brian De Palma film. An experience in terror and suspense. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome director, producer, screenwriter, film scholar, Sam Irvin. <laughs> Sam began his career as an intern on Brian De Palma's The Fury and later moved up to director uh, to the assistant for Brian De Palma on Dress to Kill. Mr. Irvin has nearly 40 director credits to his name in the last four decades and has worked with such esteemable talent as Rod Steiger, Isaac Hayes, Tommy Howell, Mariel Hemingway, George Takai, Julie Newmar, and many, many others. And Mr. Urban is going to join us to share his experiences working on The Fury as we celebrate Brian De Palma's 1978 film on its 40th anniversary. So we'll first get into it by, I always like to ask my guests how they got into the business. I know you were born in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm from, I'm living in Charlotte myself, so I know exactly where that's at. And so I'd like to know, I know I've seen your post on Facebook I picked up that you were a film fan from an early age, like myself. 
So, <laughs> yes, Adam. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a it's a real pleasure. Um, yes, I was born in Asheville, North Carolina. My dad owned uh, movie theaters in the Carolinas, and so I grew up with movie theaters being my playground. And this was back in the days long before, you know, you could own movies yourself. You know, it was before videotape and and everything. So the only way you could really see movies multiple times would be to see them in the theater or then wait for them to come on TV to one of the few channels back then. And uh, so I was really lucky in that I got to, you know, really the movies that I loved, I could just watch over and over. And, um, and I did. And so I was really obsessed with films from the earliest age. And then when I was about eight years old, we took a family cross-country trip to California and to Disneyland and, you know, Grand Canyon, the whole thing. And my um, dad, because of his connections in the movie industry, was able to get us a VIP tour at Warner Brothers Studios. And I walked onto a soundstage where they were shooting The Great Race, the Blake Edwards movie with... Natalie Wood and Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. Wow. And they were shooting this huge scene on an iceberg in a giant tank of water with, with antique cars on the iceberg. And there was a storm with fans and rain and waves. And I, the eyes just popped right out of my <laughs> eight-year-old head. And I could not believe this was all being created in a soundstage in Hollywood, because I thought up until that time that if they needed to shoot something like that, they'd have to go up to the North Pole and wait for a storm. And uh, so it was just this mind-boggling event that um, that shaped my life. And I took the home movie camera out of my dad's hand and never gave it back and just started making films as a kid. Um, you know, Dracula movies with my brother with a black towel as his cape and ketchup and, you know, the whole the whole thing. Then um, I went to film school at the University of South Carolina, and while I was there, I was running the campus um, movie theater. Uh, I was part. I was chairman of the film committee there, and we had a budget, and we ran films. You know, seven days a week, we did art films Monday through Thursday that were free. To attend, and then on the weekends we'd show a little bit more commercial movies and charge a dollar. And with that money, we would able we were able to fund our you know the free ones. And it was the it was the most amazing thing because we just you know were able to show so many films. This was in 16 millimeter, and we were renting our movies from like places like Films Incorporated and Janus Films and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided I was a huge fan of Brian De Palma, um, and at that time, this was about, let's see, 1976, um, 75, 76, somewhere in there, and I had seen Phantom of the Paradise and just absolutely fell in love with it. I'd seen Sisters and fell in love with that, and some of his earlier films like Greetings and Hi, Mom, and so I decided to organize a little film festival with his films. And I got bold and decided to try to get in touch with him. And I looked up in Hollywood Reporter in the in the film production charts, and it said that a film called Carrie was in pre-production, and they were casting in Los Angeles. 
And there was a number, a phone number for the casting director. So I <laughs> called and I said, could I speak to Mr. De Palma? And they said, well, he's in casting session right now. Um, call back in about 10 minutes. There's a break and you might be able to catch him. I called back in 10 minutes. They put him right on. And I was like already stunned that I'd gotten <laughs> that far. And he and I explained what what I was doing. And he said, listen, I'm broke. I live in New York. I need to get back home for the weekend so I can pick up some stuff that I need. If you can give me the triangle airfare from LA to South Carolina to New York and back to LA, I'll do it. And I said, done. We had the money in our budget to do this. So we brought him out to South Carolina. We took him around to some film classes. He was fantastic. He was drawing little storyboards on the chalkboard and explaining to the students how he storyboarded his films. It was the most incredible time. And then on wow. Saturday night, we had a, scheduled a midnight screening of Phantom of the Paradise, and everyone was supposed to come in costume, and De Palma was going to judge the best costume, and we had prizes and everything, and it was completely sold out. Everybody showed up in costume, jazz like you wouldn't believe. De Palma judged the best one. We gave the prizes, and then we start the film. And if you remember in the film, it starts with the Death Records logo, sort mm -hmm. of the, the dead bird spinning on the screen, yeah. and there's no sound. Oh. And I, the blood drains from my head. I race up to the projection booth and say, what the hell is going on? Turn on the sound, turn on the sound. And the guy, the projectionist, was freaking out. The It was a 16-millimeter projector. The sound bulb for the audio soundtrack, I mean for the, for the optical soundtrack, mm -hmm. had burned out, and there was not a replacement bulb or a spare bulb, and this is after midnight on a Saturday. There's no way to get one. And we had to stop the screening and cancel the screening. At that point, I thought, oh, crap. All this goodwill that I've built up with De Palma has just been flushed down the drain, and I, he's just going to be so freaking pissed. Well, it was kind of the opposite. He thought it was hilarious. And as years went on, he loved to tell this story to embarrass me. Whenever he would introduce me to people, he would always say, so this is the kid who da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and so I, I never live it down. Um, but uh, what ended up happening because of that, the, the following year, he of course of course he went on to make Carrie and Carrie was his first really gigantic breakout hit. Mm -hmm. And the I guess the following let's see it would be the spring of seventy seven. He was teaching. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The, I'm sorry. This uh, the next summer of seventy seven. He was shooting the Fury in Chicago. And I now had his phone number, and I called him up, and I said, is there any way I could come up to Chicago where you guys are shooting during my summer break? This, this is uh, between my junior and senior year in college. Mm -hmm. And uh, could I come up and work on it as a production assistant or an intern or anything? And he said, sure, come on up. So I immediately got an assignment from – in a fantastic magazine to write a journal on the making of the film, which 
would allow me to be a little bit more than just a production assistant because now I'm a journalist on the set and I can actually request one-on-one interviews with people like Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and all these amazing people. And so it was just this charmed, unbelievable experience to go to Chicago in August of 1977 and spend weeks with the production on on this movie. And, you know, I was just absolutely agog. And it was the first, other than being on the set of, you know, The, the Great Race for an hour when I was eight years old, this was the first time I was on a real, you know, real movie set for any length of time and really learning and actually, you know, absorbing stuff for my own career as a director. So it was it was an incredible, incredible time for me. Oh yeah, I, I still have that Cinefantastique, by the way, <laughs> the the one you did. I have a copy of that. So yeah, <laughs> for whatever it's worth. <laughs> it's it's amazing. And well, there's a funny story about that. Uh, Fred Clark, who was the editor and publisher of Cinefantastique, had promised a cover story on the Fury. He they'd already done a cover story on Carrie, which De Palma had really liked. So when he heard that I had gotten the assignment from in a fantastic to do this journal on the fury he was he was excited and and uh and impressed that i had gotten it uh, the assignment and was happy that this was all going to work out well i you know when i turned in all of my material and everything um the movie hadn't come out yet and fred was you know getting all ready to uh do this big issue and then different things happened he star wars sort of came up and he decided that he had to do Star Wars ahead of our issue and he did this big double issue on Star Wars. He did, I said, you have to at least print the interview I did with Amy Irving because I have the scoop where she talks about her relationship with Steven Spielberg for the first time ever anywhere. It's a giant scoop. You have to run it. You can't wait. And so he yeah. did run that interview in the Star Wars double issue. Well, by the time he got around to the issue where the Fury was going to be on the cover, the Fury had come out, and Fred Clark didn't really care for the movie. <laughs> oh! And so he decided to put Hans Salter, the composer for a lot of universal horror films like House of Frankenstein, on the cover instead and he shortened my article by half, at least. And uh, it was very embarrassing where I had to go to De Palma with shades of, you know, the Phantom of the Paradise screening where I thought I might get, you know, fired. By by this time, I'm working as De Palma's assistant. And it's like, uh, Brian, I'm so sorry, but it's not going to be a cover. And, you know, so anyway, he, he didn't really care <laughs> that, that much <laughs> one way or the other, but I was devastated. And, uh, so unfortunately that's what happened, but, um, but it did, you know, the, the key parts of, of my journal did run in there and I was, you know, very happy to, to at least get it out there in some way. Oh yeah. And that was, uh, now, how much of the movie had he already completed by the time you came on board? Had he, well, was... they they started shooting on location in Chicago, so it was kind of the head, the the beginnings of the of the shoot, 
And then after Chicago, then they went to California to do all of the studio shooting out there, which I did not, I was not part of that, although, you know, I kept in close touch with what was going on and was getting photographs and stuff from the, from the publicist and that sort of thing. And then um, during my Christmas uh, vacation of 77, I went up to New York where they were editing the film, and Paul Hirsch was the editor who, of course, edited Star Wars and Carrie, and, you know, he's an incredible editor. Oh, yeah. Um, and I got to meet him and interview him, and then they got John Williams on the phone with me, and I interviewed him, and, you know, it was it was just all incredible. So, um and then De Palma was—I mean, just looking ahead so that people understand the context here—in the um, spring of '78, this would be um, after the, the summer of '77 when I went up to Chicago. Now we're going maybe you know a few months later to '78. He De Palma was teaching a course at Sarah Lawrence College on screenwriting where he presented his treatment for a film called Home Movies to the class and got the class to write it, to expand it into script form. And he assigned different scenes to different students, and by the end of the semester, they had a fully completed screenplay for Home Movies and polished it and everything. And then in the summer of 78, De Palma decided that he wanted to make that into a low-budget film using some of the students from Sarah Lawrence College as crew members and also using some professional crew members. And he got Kirk Douglas to come and star in it with Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon and Vincent Gardenia and Garrett Graham, who was beef in in, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. And so I'm finishing up my senior year at the University of South Carolina and in early May, I get a call from De Palma, and he says, "Do you?" He explains what they're doing. He said, "Do you want to come up um, this summer to work on this film?" And I'm like, uh, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to ask. I will be there." And literally, I, as soon as I finished my final exams, I didn't even wait for the graduation ceremony. I just jumped on the next plane, went to New York to work on home movies with De Palma. Now, I assumed I was going to be the, you know, like an assist, production assistant, intern type person that I was on The Fury. And I get off the plane and I go to, up to Sarah Lawrence College where they're actually going to shoot on location up there in Scarsdale, New York. And De Palma says, you're going to be the associate producer and production manager. (laughs) So basically he was, you know, throwing me into the deep end to see if I could swim. And that's what happened. And so it was just this incredible, you know, overnight um, kind of success of, you know, graduating from college and then being an associate producer on a Brian De Palma film. It was, it was unbelievable. And from there, after that, he hired me as his assistant, and I worked on Dress to Kill and um, and then a bunch of other projects that he had in development, and I worked a little bit on on prep on Blowout, and, and we worked a year on Prince of the City, which he ended up not directing, and you know, different things like that. So it was it was my experience with him was was really really incredible. 
Um, and then I left working with him. He he wanted to. Uh, there was one of the students from Sarah Lawrence College who had worked on home movies named Charlie Loventhal, and he had a project that he wanted to direct called um, The First Time, and it was a it was kind of a coming-of-age comedy. And De Palma thought that I should produce it, and he, he said, you produce it, and De Palma was going to be like a, sort of like an executive producer. He ended up getting credited as a creative consultant, and... Um, and we had Wendy Jo Sperber in it and Wallace Shawn and Tim Choate, and it was a really wonderful cast. Yeah. And, um, and I, the filmmaker had raised money through family and friends, and they had about half the budget. And then I went to New Line Cinema and had a meeting with Bob Shea and got the other half. It was kind of a slam dunk. And, um, and so that's, that's why I quit working as De Palma's assistant to go produce that film. And but although De Palma was kind of looking over our shoulders throughout and advising us on it, and then I did a short film called Double Negative that I financed myself on my on credit cards and uh, to kind of get my directing career going. And I wrote and directed and produced it. And it had had Bill Finley, who was the Phantom of the Paradise, and. Uh, who had also played the villain in Sisters, so this was iconic for yeah. me. And he had a small part in The Fury. Yeah. And, uh, and we had him on had our Wayne. show. I was going to tell you real, real oh, quick. Oh, wow. Yeah, we did. That's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Before he passed. Yeah, he came on Aww. and he, talked, he gave us about 30 minutes or so talking about Phantom. So uh, oh, anyway, <laughs> I didn't that's mean to amazing. interrupt, but I just thought you might No, that's that interesting. Fan- <laughs> that's so fantastic. Yeah, and we, we had um, Bill... Bill Randolph, who was the cab driver in Dress to Kill, and we had Wayne Knight, who later was Newman on Seinfeld and was in Jurassic Park and was one of the interrogators mm-hmm. in Basic Instinct and the famous uh, famous scene. Anyway, um, and Justin Henry from Kramer vs. Kramer. It was really oh, yeah. kind of a cool cast for a little short film. And then that got um, attention. It, it got accepted at Sundance, and then it opened... Uh, theatrically, it played in front of Martin Scorsese's After Hours in New York and L.A. and in front of Emerald Forest, the John Borman film, and a couple of other movies, and really got um, you know got a great review in the New York Times, and that was sort of my calling card to get my directing career off the ground. Okay, the reason I'm mentioning that is that The Fury, the Blu-ray that has come out in Europe from Arrow Films in the UK and yeah. Carlotta films in France in the extras, there's a one hour or a 50 minute interview with me about my experiences on the fury, but they also include this short film that I wrote, directed and produced called double negative. So anyway, if you want to see that, cause it's been very hard to, to see or find in all these decades, it is now preserved on those Blu-rays. So you can check that out. I do have that, by the way. <laughs> I do have that. That's amazing. And it is quite good. Yeah, I was, was going to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I have a I have a Region Two Blu-ray player, so I was when that came out, I said, "Yep, got to have this one because of the extras, <laughs> if nothing else." And and your your the piece that you do on there is is quite good. So yeah, that's 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 he was kind of a mentor, I guess, to you yeah. in, in a way. He and absolutely just, was my mentor, and. Yeah. I learned, you know, you you can only learn so much in the classroom. Uh, it's it's all about getting out there and making your own films and being able to 
see De Palma in action and mm-hmm. see it from the inside and watch the creative process unfold was, you know, that was my film school. And, I, you know, I really owe him everything for my career, for sure. Yeah, he's... And I've I've always been a huge fan of his stuff. I always responded to it from my my teen years. I guess is where I first started uh, becoming obsessive about his work, yeah. and have been pretty much ever since. And uh, my co-hosts on the show they feel the same way as do a lot of our listeners. We're all oh. pretty much part of the the De Palma. Um, the cheerleading squad, I guess you would exactly. say. <laughs> well, I mean, I was a huge fan of Hitchcock, and because of his love of Hitchcock and, and how he, you, you know, does so many homages to Hitchcock in his work, and his, his just, I, I love the, the way that his films are so visually compelling and so operatic in that way. Um, even, even the De Palma films that I don't find to be uh, as as good as others. They're always so incredibly beautiful to watch, and they're mesmerizing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, that's that's been a tremendous influence on on my work. Yeah, it's funny the the people that I have r- encountered over the years who have worked with him, and um, William Cat was one I uh, had. Uh-huh. Uh, had uh, got to talk to him several years ago, and he said that when they were uh, doing Carrie, he at his apartment, uh, De Palma had all the the uh, the um, uh, illustrations for the what he was planning on doing. He had them all tacked up on his his yep. wall in the apartment. That's exactly right. So, That's uh, how he would storyboard. When I was when yeah. I was working on Dress to Kill, for instance, he his. Um, he had his apart his office at 25 Fifth Avenue in New York. It was his old apartment which he had kept and because it was rent control and he uh kept it and turned it into his office when he when he bought a um a larger place uh just down the street at 1 Fifth Avenue where he mm-hmm. lived. And um at 25 Fifth Avenue he had put cork board. In fact, I helped him I I bought the cork board and had it put up on the walls <laughs> and Literally, just the entire walls on all, you know, all the way around the living room were just solid corkboard. Mm-hmm. And he had, he would make these little illustrations on blank uh, business card size cards and very crude, you know, illustrations, very often in pencil, um, sometimes in ink, but usually in pencil so he could erase and change things if he wanted to. And we would take push pins and tack them up on the wall, and each scene would have a number, and then under that number would be a, a vertical row going down the wall of that scene. And if it was a long scene, it could it could go on for you know dozens of cards. If it was a short scene, it could be just a few. And um, and he would he would you know break down the script that way and prepare. Uh, his storyboards that way and then I would have to take very carefully take these cards down I'd write on the back numbers I'd write the scene number and you know if let's say the scene had 18 cards I would you know on the back of the card and and say it was scene I don't know scene 75 I would put 75-1 75-2 you know and, and sort of catalog them that way 
and then I would put them, I would have to line them up in a Xerox machine so we could make, so we could copy the storyboards to hand out to the various department heads that would need to see these, especially, you know, camera department and the production designer and, and that sort of thing. And then once, you know, once I took the cards down, I would have to then put them back up on the corkboard the way they were. So that was that was one of the great jobs that I had. And, you know, it was a lot of busy work, but it was also, you know, it just had me so intimately involved in, in, uh, in seeing that preparation. And th- a lot of the drawings were pretty crude. Sometimes you couldn't tell what was going on. So I <laughs> would very often be the one to have to ask De Palma to now explain this. The production designers confuse what this means and that sort of thing. So I would be sometimes uh, a, a go between departments to uh, to g- interpret the the cards. <laughs> so it's, it was it was quite amazing. And of course, De Palma, you know, moves the camera a lot. So it's hard in these still, you know, in these, you know, static drawings to sometimes understand, you know, where the camera was going to be moving. He'd have arrows and things like that. So I would many times have to get him to explain it to me, and then I would, I would in turn go and explain it to, to the various departments. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's... Yeah, that, I'm always endlessly fascinated by his working process, and I appreciate your sharing that because that's uh, that. Yeah, and just like you said, that's that's really intimate. Uh, yeah, getting close pretty, to it. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and so on the Fury, uh, it was the one and only time that he worked with Richard Klein, who we whom we just lost recently. He just yes, uh, passed two weeks sad. ago. Yeah, and I was wondering if you were able to witness his, because I think some of the early footage in The Fury, uh, and you may not have been around for this, but the the scenes where uh, Andrew Stevens' character is kidnapped, uh, I've always said that it has a 3D quality almost, some of huh. those scenes. I, I'd never, and I don't know how he, he how he achieved that. I, I was so desperate to get him on our show, and his health just wasn't. Uh, cooperating and I tried and I tried and he um, just couldn't make it happen but because uh, I wanted to ask him firsthand but there's some those early scenes are just amazing uh, to me it, it looks like uh, it has a certain 3D element but it's not 3D and I'm not sure how he pulled that off but yeah was, I don't I, I don't know um, but he he was an amazing cameraman and you know I was I was impressed by how fast he was in in lighting scenes and mm-hmm. getting, you know, getting things going. I mean, that's always uh, especially on bigger budgeted films, you know, you can get into situations where directors of photography tweak to death and yeah. and take and take too long to get things set up, but but he was very efficient and I mean, I didn't have a lot of experience back then, but certainly looking back on it, um, you know, he he definitely was 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 quite economic in the way that he that he did did his work, and uh, and I thought he did a really marvelous job. I did too. I think I think his work on the Fury is is very very impressive, and he was just I know coming off of his experiences with King Kong, which <laughs> we're trying to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> At least exactly. he did get an Oscar nomination for that one, so he got rewarded to a certain degree. But still, uh, that was uh, 
that hard that, to believe. Hard to believe for that. <laughs> I know, right? It's true. The only two films he was nominated for were Camelot and King Kong, of all the things <laughs> he did. So <laughs> we have to laugh about that. But, exactly. But yeah, I know The Fury was the only time that that he worked with Richard Klein. It was the only time he worked with John Williams, which I thought was also very interesting because he never collaborated with those two either again. And I think they both turn in some some great. Um, they they aided the film immeasurably. I think. Oh, I think their, so too. In fact, in fact, The Fury score is one of my all-time favorite John Williams scores, if not my all-time favorite. I mean, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And, I mean, you know, clearly De Palma, is, as we all know, is a big Bernard Herrmann fan, mm-hmm. as we all are ourselves, I'm yes. assuming. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I'm sure that that uh, I, I'm 99% sure that I heard this myself when I visited the editing room, but uh, in, in that, uh, during my Christmas vacation, but I'm sure that De Palma was using Bernard Herrmann cues to temp score the picture. And Mm -hmm. I don't know whether John Williams was the type of person who would actually listen to a temp score. I've I've never, um, never heard him ask that question, but certainly De Palma wanted a very Herrmann-esque kind of vibe. And, and that's, I think the direction that Williams went in, and I think he just did an absolutely superb job. And of course, you know the famous story on on Sisters when <laughs> De Palma uh, had Bernard Herrmann come to see the rough, you know, the the cut of, yes. of Sisters, and he had tempted it with uh, all of Bernie's scores <laughs> from other movies. And the second that came on the screen, and and Bernie hears his other music playing, he's jumped up and screamed stop stop you know and <laughs> I was furious and told De Palma that you know how can I write new music if I'm listening to you know this other stuff and especially my own work and you know don't ever do that again and so you know they they had to uh take that track away and and play it for him with just the dialogue and effects and and uh anyway but he ended up, you know, also of course doing Obsession and and uh so they they ultimately uh made up. But <laughs> Yeah. But uh anyway, I don't know if John Williams has the same feelings about listening to Temp Scores. I that I don't know. You may know. I don't I but I don't. But <laughs> I haven't uh, heard anything about that, so <laughs> Yeah. I it, it, I would be very curious to know if uh if he too. actually listened to one of De Palma's Temp Scores cuz you know it was laced with with Herman. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I and I know uh Herman was scheduled to do Carrie before he untimely before his untimely passing. Yeah, and uh, at the end of '75, uh, so I think yeah, he was, it was very, just getting very sad. After right after Taxi Driver, of course. Yes, yeah. But like very shortly after the last recording session. That's right. Yeah. Very, very but um, but of course, Carrie ended up with a magnificent score by Pino Donaggio, who you know, I mean, I can I almost can't imagine that movie without his score, and uh. And Pino, you know, went on to do so many De Palma films, and I was lucky enough to uh, have Pino come and do one of my. Well, he didn't come and do. He <laughs> he did it in Italy, uh, but he did my <laughs> film Oblivion in '93 or somewhere around there. 
Yeah. And um which is, you know, one of my personal favorites mm-hmm. and um you know, it's absolutely brilliant, but it was it, it was partly because of of my knowing Pino because Pino did home movies that I associate produced for De Palma and yes. Dress to Kill and so I met him on several occasions and uh so it was partly through my getting to know him but also just ironically the the head of Full Moon Pictures that did Oblivion um Charlie Band happened to know Pino as well and so as soon as I realized that he knew him you know I was badgering please let's get Pino to do the score for this and so that's how it ended up happening on that the other um De Palma connections that have followed me along the way are um that I became very close friends with Nancy Allen uh especially she was in in home movies and dress to kill and blowout that I started to work on for a bit before I took off to produce the first time and uh so we became really close friends and um and of course she was married to De Palma actually they got married when I was working for him she was shooting 1941 and she snuck back on a weekend to marry De Palma in a secret ceremony and didn't tell the the assistant director or the people on 1941 that she was leaving town. And I suddenly admit the office and I get this call. It says, this is Steven Spielberg. Where is Where's Brian? And and I go, uh, he's not here right now. And he says, if Nancy Allen is in New York, he was furious because they suddenly had changed the schedule and needed her for a scene. And, uh, anyway, so that was a panic for, you know, a bit, but of course, Mm -hmm. you know, everything, once Stephen realized that she was getting married and everything else, it was, it was all okay. But, uh, but at any rate, um, she and I became very close friends and are still very close friends to this very day. In fact, I just corresponded her with her today. Um, and she starred in a film that I directed for the Showtime Network, a thriller called Kiss of a Stranger that also had Linda Fiorentino from Scorsese's After Hours, mm-hmm. was a big fan of, and C. Thomas Howell and a whole bunch of other people. But um, so... When she ended up divorcing De Palma, you know how a lot of times when people divorce, the friends sort of get divided up, and that kind of happened with me. I, I remained close friends with Nancy, and uh, and Brian and I kind of drifted apart and haven't really kept in touch over the years. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, hey, I, um, I'm sure he fondly remembers those days, though, I would think. Yeah, no, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. And I'm sure he remembers the story about the Phantom of the Paradise cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of unforgettable. That's a yeah. great one. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask you about some of the actors who were in the film and your impressions of them. Yeah. Um, I, I know you were at the sh- mostly during the Chicago shoots, so I'm not sure how many of the how much of the cast was actually there. Or came on Quite later. A few. Quite okay. Because I'm. I mean, uh, certainly oh. Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes, Fiona Lewis, Andrew mm-hmm. Stevens, Amy, you know, um, Bill Finley, Daryl mm-hmm. Hannah, you know, um, Melody Thomas. A lot, lot of the cast were there. Oh, great! Yeah, I was. Uh, well, well, so many of them are gone. 
sadly. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm assuming Charles Durning probably wasn't there yeah. during. Oh, he no, was. No, I, I, I met him. Uh, I met him briefly, um, and Dennis Franz, of course. Oh yes. There and they, you know, it was kind of a discovery. I mean, he had done a couple things. I, I can't remember if he had uh, appeared in one of the Robert Altman films yet or not, but. You know, De Palma pretty much discovered him just in a casting call. He was a local Chicago actor, and he came in and played the the cop whose new Cadillac or whatever kind of car it was ended up <laughs> getting <laughs> driven right into the river. And uh, uh, it was a very funny, funny part. And and Dennis just cracked us all up. I mean, he everybody just fell in love with him, and that's why De Palma, of course you know, took him on to be in Dress to Kill and Blow Out and, you know, really kind of, I I think, launched his career. And I think so. And, uh, you know, of course, he, you know, made it really big with NYPD Blue. But, um, you know, that it all kind of, I think it all kind of really, his his career started to get on fire with the Fury for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was that was definitely a turning point for him, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, I, and then there's that stuff with uh, the the sequences where Kirk Douglas is um, dyeing his hair in the movie, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and he ties up the family but leaves Mother Knuckles to yeah <laughs> the little old lady. <laughs> yes. Oh, that was all incredible. And you know, originally that they were going to cast the old couple, Danny Kay and Vivian Blaine. Wow, um, two old Hollywood, you yes. know, actors, and uh, and it was. I mean, they were they were tossing around those names when I got there, but something happened, and they ended up not not using them and just using character actors who were, you know, equally fantastic. But uh, but I I don't know what happened with um, with the Danny Kaye thing. That would have been really interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, he he was famously difficult, I'm told, so I I don't know. Maybe that had something to do yeah, with it. Yeah. It could be. <laughs> but uh yeah, so so um of course Kirk Douglas is still with us, but I guess uh, he was uh, I'm sure I'm assuming a a consummate pro. He he always he, struck me as such that he um he was but, unbelievable. He uh, let me let me tell you the story. He came onto the set, and I'm pretty sure it was his first day. And he went around to the crew and asked everybody's name, shook their hand, asked what they did. And you know, at a, at a certain point, it looked like De Palma was getting a little frustrated because he wanted <laughs> to get started, but Kirk was absolutely taking the time to do this. And the next day came in and went around and shook everybody's hand and greeted them by their name. He had memorized every single person's name, including mine. I, the crew was stunned. I was stunned. And from that moment on, every single person on that movie would have done anything for this man. I mean, we all were fans, but he won everybody over like you wouldn't believe. He just was unbelievable. And I have taken that, I took that to heart. And on every movie that I do to this day, I make sure that I know every name of every crew member and, of course, cast member, but 
And I, at the end of the day, I go around and shake everyone's hand and thank them for their hard work and thank them by name. And it has, I mean, people are amazed that I do that. And I said, listen, I, this is all because of Kirk Douglas. <laughs> he taught me that, that uh, this kind of respect. And I just feel, when, you know, when I'm working on a film, it's a, it's a family atmosphere Everybody is important. There's no hierarchy, whether you're a production assistant or, you know, the director. It it doesn't matter. Everybody should be treated equally and with respect and by their name. And that's and I've taken that to heart to this very day. And mm-hmm. uh, and and I will never forget that watching that with with Kirk. He was absolutely amazing. He, you know, he had also directed a few films. And he had been a producer uh, with his production company. And so he was very, very uh, involved creatively. You know, he was always coming up with ideas and running them by De Palma. He wanted to do as much of his own stunts as he could. I remember a scene in this living room where uh, it's, it's he and John Cassavetes are you know, kind of having, I guess, I can't remember, but I think it's their first real confrontation. And at one point, Kirk Douglas jumps up and leaps across this glass coffee table to, you know, try to get at Cassavetes to throttle him. And the and Kirk was like, you know, I'm, I can do this, and I'll, you know, I'll leap over the table. And they're like, hold on, hold on, this is a glass table. <laughs> you know, they're, you, if you break it, you're going to, you know, cut yourself and everything. So they came in, and they took the glass out of the table. And it was now it was just like I, either a wooden, I forget if it was wooden or brass um, sort of frame to mm-hmm. the table. And they balanced like some of the tchotchkes around the edges of it <laughs> so it looked <laughs> like they had the illusion that the glass was still there but it really <laughs> wasn't and and then you know Kirk like leaped over it and uh in the take and and everything was fine of course but I'll never forget how I was like you're gonna be able to tell that it doesn't have that glass in the table of course you don't tell and you're not looking at it and you know but but now that i've told you if you go and look at that scene you will notice that it's a little (laughs) odd that all the chachas are you know way pushed way over to the edge of the table and nothing in the middle (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm never uh, gonna see that again the same way so (laughs) yes you're never gonna see it the same way so but it was you know it was little little things like that that um you know that that I picked up on and and you know have have used over the years in 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 the films that I've directed mm-hmm. um like another thing that you'll never look at the same again um in the cafeteria scene with the girls where um they where the girl ends up bleeding through, from her nose and everything yes. in this telekinesis moment between Amy Irving and the bully girl um and daryl hannah is at the head of the table um if you look behind daryl hannah there's windows and this scene was shot even though it was taking place of course in the script during the day it was a shot day for night we were shooting it very late at night it was like four in the morning and the director of photography put 
white paper on the outside of the windows and then put lights behind them to sort of blow out the windows. And this is a very common practice. I, you know, mm-hmm. every everybody does it um, when you're trying to shoot day for night, and you just you just have a lot of light blown out, blowing out, you know, the windows so that they're sort of soft, fuzzy white light coming through. Well, for whatever reason, in some of the shots, the light I don't think was bright enough behind this paper or the paper was too thick or something went wrong where you normally get this nice, you know, just blown out sort of soft focus thing around the windows. But in this particular case, it the light wasn't strong enough. And so you're, you can actually, when you're looking at it, you can just see that it's white paper and that there are shadows on the paper from the, from the window frame. And it really doesn't quite sell it the way they were hoping it would. Of course, your eyes don't normally go to it because you're paying attention to the girls and, and everything. But that was, that was something when they were doing it, I, I was unfamiliar with that process. And I was like, I'm not sure that's going to work. <laughs> and then when I saw the final film, I was like, oh, it didn't really work. But then I've seen it done, you know, successfully yeah. a billion other times. <laughs> and I've done it in my own films where we where we did make sure that the light was bright enough but in this particular case some you know some calculation did not didn't didn't work <laughs> <laughs> that's very interesting very interesting so uh Cassavetes, now i know that he would take these roles such as the one in the fury so that he could bankroll his own indie a- film projects Exactly right. And when I interviewed him on the set, that's that's what he told me. He he said, you know, I'm I'm, I'm basically doing this for the buddy, and uh, and I was kind of stunned to hear that. But but at the same time, you know, he was a consummate actor and consummate professional, and you know, was absolutely you know he knew his lines and he was coming up with all sorts of great stuff and and was having a great time doing it. So as much as he was, you know, kind of turning his nose up to this type of material a, a wee bit, at the same time, he took it, he took his job very seriously. And, you know, I thought he did a fantastic job. Now, there was one moment that did not end up in the final film, and I'm kind of glad it didn't. Uh, when Kirk Douglas is trying to save um, Andrew Stevens from the rooftop where he's falling there Kirk Douglas ends up falling off the roof onto the ground Mm -hmm. and Cassavetes comes over to him and Kirk Douglas in the scene that I actually watched them shoot and at one point I had a photograph of it and I I actually sold it years ago to uh, Laurent Bouzereau. So if you want to track it down, you can find Laurent, who wrote a book on De Palma, and <laughs> and find this ah, But Very good. Kirk Douglas looks up at Cassavetes from the ground and flips him a bird. <laughs> 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 and, um, and, you know, when I was watching him shoot, I was like, oh, my God, I'm just not sure that's going to come off as 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 you know it, it's going to get a laugh i'm afraid it's going to get yeah. a laugh at a place where you don't want to laugh 
And I think that's what ended up happening in the rough cut screenings, test screenings or whatever. Um, for, you know, I'm not sure exactly if that's the way that they decided not to, but probably. And, uh, but they ended up cutting that out. The other thing is, is that Cassavetes had a gun in his hand that, and I, I'd have to go back and read that moment in the script again and, and figure out who he was shooting at. He was either, I guess he was shooting at Douglas. Um, but for whatever reason, they took out him having a gun and, and shooting, I think it's just, maybe you'll remember, did Douglas just slip and fall? Or I'm not, I can't quite remember how he ended up falling off the roof. But I'm pretty sure that at one point it was Cassavetes shooting at him, and then he falls. Well, yeah. you, can, you can see in a couple of the shots of Cassavetes, there's one shot where you can actually see a tiny piece of the gun still in the frame, and you can definitely see a trail of the smoke coming from the barrel of the gun in, in one of the shots. So anyway, next time you look at that moment, um, just pay attention to the shots of Cassavetes really closely, and you'll see the, some, some carryover remnants of, the, of that. Oh yeah, that's yeah. I think what happens is he's uh, he slips. I think. And yeah, I uh, think they. That's what they ended up cutting it to yeah. to appear that he slipped and fell. Mm-hmm, but I yeah. think I think when they were shooting it that he that Cassavetes shot him. Maybe he was wounded in the leg or missed or something. But Kirk ended up falling, and and so Cassavetes is standing over him with a smoking gun, and mm-hmm. uh, and they cut around that as best they could to get rid of the gun. And I'm not sure why that was. I'm not. I I, I don't really. It doesn't seem like that would have been a a um, you know. The, I can understand the flipping the bird might have gotten the wrong sort of reaction, but the gun. I'm not sure why. Maybe they felt like, you know, he he would have shot him and you know, why didn't he just shoot him dead right there? Yeah. Yeah. That that may have that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I know um yet yeah, now there there are two of my favorite moments in the film, um I don't know if you were around for either of those, or one is the escape from the hospital, of course. Yes. And that was an, that was an incredible sequence. Yeah, I, I I was just wondering if you uh, had any memories of of them uh, putting. I'm sure it took probably took, I would say at least a week, maybe two. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, first of all, it was. I mean, it, it's such an amazing sequence. It all shot in slow motion and everything. Yeah. But um, no, it didn't take it didn't take all that long to do. Wow. But um, I don't remember offhand, but I don't think it was any more than a day, maybe maybe part of another day but it, it it was it was done fairly quickly um but yeah it was it was shot in slow motion and you know it, but it, we think of it so emotionally um because it's just you know it's just so incredible the whole sequence and the way that John Williams scored it and yes and just mm-hmm. the whole montage of the slow motion but uh yeah, I mean it was it was you know when we were watching it at the time, I don't think I realized the kind of impact that it was going to have in the final film for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean it was it's really a brilliant sequence. 
Oh, it is. It's it's standout. Uh, and the other sequence uh, would be the one, of course, where Cassavetes literally explodes at the end of yeah. the movie. Yeah, now that, <laughs> that I was not there for. That was done in okay. California. But, of okay. course, we've all heard the stories. They did two takes. The, the first one didn't work. The body parts didn't go the way they were in the directions they needed. And, uh, and it took them a, like a week to get it all... <laughs> set up again and and for for take two and then you know the head blows off right and just blows right by that camera one of the cameras at the top the overhead cameras oh my Mm -hmm. god i mean what an incredible shot or multiple shots that was insane just absolutely incredible yeah it's 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 perfect the way that it it came off the second time around yeah you're exactly right and um and just one other actress that's in the movie that I thought left us way too soon, Carrie Snodgrass. I don't Nine, know if she was no. around when you... Yes, she was, and was so sweet. I absolutely adored her. I was such a big fan of her in The Diary of a Mad Housewife. Oh, for me which too. She was yeah. nominated for an Oscar. And for whatever reason, her career just didn't really take off after that. And, and mm-hmm. I don't really know the reasons why, if, if it was because she wasn't pursuing it or whatever, but De Palma kind of brought her out of this sort of lull or semi-retirement mm-hmm. uh, to do The Fury. And I, God, she just, her, she's just so vulnerable and so sweet on screen and that's the way she was in real life just the sweetest sweetest lady i absolutely loved her oh that's good to know yeah she i was just such a fan and uh you know like i said that was really saddened years ago when i saw that she had passed and that's been almost 15 years which i I know i know it's just very (sighs) sad and and it's sad that she didn't do more great film work that that you know, that was as memorable as as what she did in The Fury and Diary of a Mad Housewife. I she know. was she was a, a, such an just this magnetic screen presence. I mean, you just she just wore her emotions on her sleeve and was I I, I was always in awe of of her. Yeah, I I can understand that. <laughs> now, For sure. the, also, who I was in I I was in awe of. Amy Irving because of Carrie, which I you oh, know, yeah. thought was just, I think to this day, is Carrie is still my favorite De Palma film. And so I was really excited to meet Amy, and um, and we became friends for, you know, half a minute, and we had dinner one time when she was in New York, and, you know, she she was just a real sweetheart. I When I interviewed her, as I mentioned earlier, I I had found out that she was living with Spielberg. And so I just, in my naivete, I just like brought it up. Like it was matter of fact. And she was like, who told you that? (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm like, Oh, little birdie. And, uh, and then she said, well, okay. Yes. And they, she talked about their dog and, uh, and I was like, wow, this is a really cool. I didn't, I think I didn't quite realize how much of a scoop it was at the time, but it really was. <laughs> and um, but she was loads of fun. And the other one, the other actress that I was so excited to meet was Fiona Lewis because I was such a gigantic fan of Doctor Five's Rises Again that she oh, was in. I, the Fearless Vampire Killers, where she has a small part in that, is one of my all-time favorite movies. 
And Me of course, too. she had done Listomania with Ken Russell, and just I, I just absolutely worshipped Fiona Lewis. So the chance to beat her was unbelievable, and she was so much fun. I can't even begin to tell you. She was mischievous. <laughs> she was funny. She had that dry sense of humor, and. She would pal around with me at the hotel. I was staying at the same hotel that she was at with a lot of the other actors. And, um, you know, on a day off or night or whatever, we would pal around or grab a bite to eat. And there were times she always wanted to come to set even when she wasn't working. And she would smuggle champagne onto the set and, you know, be hiding it. And she'd get Amy over and they'd be sneaking, drinking champagne and stuff. I remember the night at the, at the, um, when they were shooting the classroom scene that I was talking about with the paper on the windows Mm -hmm. and Fiona wasn't in that scene at all, but she was there and she was getting Amy, you know, a little, (laughs) a little high on champagne and, between takes, I remember Amy jumping up on the uh, the camera um, dolly and was sitting behind the camera pretending to be the cameraman and, you know, wheeling it around and everything. And De Palma started to giggle and started laughing so hard. And Amy was, like, turning the camera around onto De Palma and, you know, pretending like she was going to turn on the camera. And, and they were just cutting up and it was it was so much fun it, it, we were, everyone was was dying laughing but it was really instigated so many times by Fiona who was just you know this little spitfire and you know always trying to get something funny going so it was, it was she was such a pleasure to have on set for sure oh that <laughs> that's hilarious that's, that's, a, that's a great story <laughs> sure and the other um another sequence that uh that ha- I have a lot of vivid memories about was shooting the amusement park and this was done in a an indoor amusement park if you can believe it it was called Old Chicago it's not in existence anymore but it was in this gigantic um building uh but it had all these rides inside and that's where uh Andrew Stevens walks through the crowds with his, you know, telekinesis going off and and all the rides start going crazy and sparks coming out of, you know, light bulbs bursting and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um and I got to be an extra in that sequence. And uh I was wearing blue jean jacket, blue jean pants, and I have red hair um, so if you're watching the scene, you can find me in just about every shot <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And uh, I think when De Palma said, why don't you be an extra in this, I don't think he knew what he was bargaining for because I've sort of maneuvered my way into probably too many angles because it'll cut from one side of the room to the other, and I'm in both. And uh, But uh, anyway, I'm in there quite a bit. And um Andrew, of course, had the the veins in his forehead that were pulsating, and that was um, a design that Dick Smith had created, um, but uh, was not able to be on location because I, I, he was working on another film, I think, in Hollywood at the time. Mm-hmm. But he had created the designs and the prosthetics and everything, and they had 
Bill Tuttle, William Tuttle, the, another incredibly um, famous makeup artist. Of course, I mean, Dick Smith, of course, had done, you know, The Exorcist, hello. And then uh, Bill Tuttle had done things like, you know, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau and all, and all kinds of great stuff. But he was an old timer, and he came. He was there every day on set to do these prosthetics, and I remember being so fascinated by it because these veins were little, you know, um, little pouches, air sort of air pouches, and they had tubes that went up uh, Andrew's forehead in through his scalp down the back of his neck. And he would have, and it would go down, the, the the little tubes would go down into the palms of his hand where he had these little, um, I don't know what you call it, little bladders, I guess, that he would squeeze air to make the, to pulsate. So, and many times it was Andrew who was actually squeezing these air things to, to make his veins pulsate on his forehead when it was a tighter shot and Bill Tuttle could sneak, you know, could be sitting on the floor behind him or whatever than, than Bill would be, um, you know, pressure, pressurizing the, uh, the little bladder to make the, uh, the things pulsate. And, um, they had a, I remember that they had a very hard time when they would apply this appliance, it would be, it would cover his entire forehead and they would have to blend in the edges so you wouldn't see the seam and everything. But the one place that was giving them a hard time was was bet- right across the nose, um, between the eyebrows, basically. And I guess when he would scrunch his forehead and with consternation or whatever, when he was mm-hmm. acting the you know the moment of of this telekinesis it would sometimes make the prosthetic come loose there in that area. And so they had to keep stopping to shoot for Bill to come in and, and reapply the glue and, and the, the whatever that he was doing to try to meld, you know, meld that into his skin right across the nose area. But there, you know, if you're really, really, really looking for it, there are times in close-ups where you can see the, the problem and the, that it was giving them. But, um, but I remember, you know, a lot of time was was devoted to that. Um, and then, of course, there you have the big um, ride that crashes into the the restaurant windows and everything, and that was that was quite an, an operation. They had built the, this restaurant was inside this um, indoor amusement park, but it was on an upper level, and so the windows were, you know, facing out like on a second or third story high windows. And they built this giant track um, to put the the amusement cart ride on that would so they could literally, you know just roll it right into the windows at fast speed. And when the cameras were inside the restaurant looking out the windows, they would they'd have the, the angle low enough where you couldn't actually see the track. You would just see the, the ride itself bear, you know, careening toward the window, and you thought it was airborne, but it was actually on a, on a little track. It was like a little train track <laughs> almost. 
on top of this big wooden scaffolding that they had built. And uh, and that was all quite it was it was pretty scary actually. I mean, I was inside the restaurant when that thing came barreling through those windows. You you know, they cleared everybody way back. But um and they had, you know, big either I guess it was like big giant plexiglass uh things in protecting the camera crew and and uh you know, everybody had tarps on for any kind of flying glass and you had to, you know, be very very careful that you weren't going to get hurt by any of this. But I remember when that thing came careening forward and crashing through, it it was scary because it was, you know, it was really happening. And um, so that was a pretty cool moment. And it was something that did take quite a bit of time to get set up. And And that, you know, they only did one take of the actual crash through the windows, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I've always wondered how they pulled that off, but that that's... Uh... Yeah, and cute. if you if you look at the Cinefantastique, I took a picture of the scaffolding. Um, mm-hmm. You can actually see it. Let me see what page that's on. It's um, oh, there it is. It's um, it's on page. What page is this? I guess. Well, it's the very first page of the spread, and um, and you can see the the wooden scaffolding where the ride is up there, headed right toward that window. And actually, it's just a second. I'm now that I'm looking at it, it's just a second floor window. And uh, but it it careens. You know, they had it able to careen across that scaffold really fast and just and crash at full speed right through the window. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine that would be scary for sure. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was. Yeah. Well, listen, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I know you're busy and and all that, but uh, this this has really been great. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your memories of this film because you were there, and <laughs> and so there's um, it's it's always interesting to hear from somebody who was. And uh, I was just going to give you an opportunity to promote anything that you might have coming up in the future <laughs> that you want to talk about uh, before well, we go. I do. Um, I direct a lot of Lifetime thrillers uh, and Hallmark Christmas movies. That's kind of what I've been specializing in in the last few years. And uh, in the past 12 months, if you can believe this, I've directed six m- movies and I have two more lined up. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy how busy I I am of late. Um, But when you're watching Lifetime, I I would give you titles, although of of some of the ones that I've just shot, but they always end up changing the titles by the time they air. (laughs) So I don't know that it would be much help. I had one uh, that I shot last year that just premiered on the Lifetime Movies Network called Homecoming Revenge. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and it had it had a lot of carry in there because there was a big homecoming uh, dance and uh, in a gym, and uh, you'll see a lot of homage to carry in there for sure. Um, the other thing that I'm really proud of that I've been doing of, uh, in the last few years is writing uh, about behind the scenes 
Hollywood type of stuff. And I, I did a book um, called Kay Thompson from Funny Face to Eloise. It's all about, it's a biography of Kay Thompson who mm. wrote the Eloise children's books and was Liza Minnelli's goddaughter. And she starred in Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire and led this absolutely amazing life, work, mostly working behind the scenes as a vocal arranger and vocal coach at MGM and and whatnot. Um, and that book was published by Simon and Schuster, and you can find it easily on Amazon. Um, the other thing that I've done just last year, which I'm really excited about, is that I was asked to guest edit an issue of Little Shop of Horrors magazine, number 38. And the entire magazine is devoted to the making of Frankenstein, The True Story, which was a two-part NBC um, television production of Frankenstein in 1973 that mm-hmm. starred Michael Sarazen, James Mason, Leonard Whiting, uh, David McCallum, Jane Seymour, Agnes Moorhead, Sir John Gielgud, Sir Ralph Richardson, just this incredible cast. And it's always been one of my favorites. And so the editor of this magazine gave me the opportunity to guest edit the entire issue. I got Anne Rice to write the foreword. It's the movie that inspired her to write Interview with the Vampire, and I was really happy that she could do that. This movie is also one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite movies, and um, he even said in a a recent interview that it was one of the films that inspired uh, Shape of Water. And so, anyway, this entire magazine, I wrote a 50,000-word making of that won the Rondo Award. I'm so proud for Best Article of the Year. And uh, and I also interviewed 20 of the surviving cast and crew, including Jane Seymour and David McCallum and Leonard Whiting and, and as many people as, as I could find. And um, so I'm extremely proud of it. And you don't even have to like the film or even have seen it. The behind-the-scenes story of getting this project to the screen is the most amazing story you will ever read about behind-the-scenes Hollywood. Everybody wanted to do this movie. Francis Ford Coppola begged to direct it after he had done The Godfather. Uh, (laughs) John Borman begged to direct it. Um, Actors who were at one point or another attached to it included people like Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, John Voight, Warren Beatty. I mean, you you just can't even believe it. You, your jaw will be dropped the whole time you're reading about it. So I I um, encourage you to to get a copy, support um, print magazines, which are you know a dying breed, and uh, you can find it at www.littleshopofhorrors.com, and it's little shop. It's spelled the old-fashioned way. Shop is spelled S-H-O-P-P-E. So it's www.littleshopofhorrors.com. And uh, um, that that's the thing that I am so, so, so proud of of late that I contributed to the history of cinema. So there you go. 
<laughs> yeah, I had seen some of your posts on Facebook about that, and I, I, it has been so long since I've seen that movie. I, I remember being impressed by it, but it's been so long I need to revisit it because yeah, I just don't do. remember a lot about it. The full uh, three-hour version is available on DVD from Universal Home Entertainment, and you can get that on Amazon for like six bucks. So you you owe it to yourself to check it out. It was the script was written by the great novelist Christopher Isherwood and his partner Don Bacardi, the great artist. And um, it's it's just an it's an amazing adaptation of Frankenstein. It, it's I, I think it's one of the most interesting ones. And because it's from Universal, it's amazing that it doesn't get, you know, we hear about all the other Universal Frankenstein films over and over and over, and this is kind of one that got lost in the in the shuffle a bit. So I'm trying to uh, shed shed new light on it and and uh, bring it back for people to discover. Yeah, and that was the same year. I think uh, there was another competing uh, Frankenstein film, made for TV yeah. film, that came out that same year, I believe. So yeah. it was a little. Confusing. It was Dan Curtis Productions did a, a very low budget um, yes. Frankenstein production on videotape that was um, with Bose Vinson as the creature and yeah. Robert Foxworth as Doctor Frankenstein, and um, and it was it was quite interesting too, and very good performances. Um, but this this one is so epic. It's, it's unbelievable what they were what they were able to do, and and it was also the highest budgeted TV movie ever up to that time. It was the highest budgeted horror movie ever up to that time, and uh, and you really see it on the screen. There's it, it, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> 